Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, October tenth episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have brought to you over 130 poets in 15 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com/donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. Today's episode features my conversation with David Eckleton, with whom I discuss his poem "Republic of Fiji" and my poem "Topsy Turvy." Before we get to that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of October 11th. From Monday, October 11th to Tuesday, October 19th, Instituto Cervantes, London, Embassy of Argentina in London, and the European Bookshop will be hosting their third London Spanish Book and Zine Fair. You can find out more information by going to London Spanish Book Fair on Instagram or London Spanish Book and Zine Fair on Twitter and Facebook. Again, that's London Spanish Book Fair on Instagram and London Spanish Book and Zine Fair on Twitter and Facebook. From five to six thirty p.m. Australia Eastern Standard Time, that poetry thing will be having their open mic. This time featuring John Falker and Lisa Brockwell. You can find out more information at facebook.com/events/134991849. Two zero six nine four eight two. Again, that's at facebook dot com forward slash events forward slash one three four nine nine one eight four nine two zero six nine four eight two. On Tuesday, October twelfth, from three to five p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between the ages of thirteen and twenty-three. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information at urbanwordnyc.org/firstdraft. Again, that's at urbanwordnyc.org/firstdraft. On Wednesday, October thirteenth, from six p.m. Amsterdam time, Word Up Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory writing workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.com. Again, that's at wordupamsterdam.com. From seven to eight thirty p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Hudson Valley Writers Center will be hosting an evening with Patricia Spears Jones, Allison Joseph, and Catherine Pond. You can find out more information and register at writerscenter.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's at writerscenter.org. Forward slash calendar. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Joseph Leos. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org/free_workshops.html. Again, that's at beyondbaroque.org/free_workshops.html. On Thursday, October fourteenth, from seven to nine p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 
Quince Orchard Library will be hosting their poetry evenings. You can find out more information and register at mcpl.libnet.info forward slash event. Again, that's at mcpl.libnet.info forward slash events. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Nuijinan TV will be hosting their Nuijinan Scat Talon with CJ Gritz, which showcases indigenous youths between 13 and 25 via Instagram Live. You can find out more information and register at Nuijinan TV on Instagram. Again, that's at N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V on Instagram. From 8 to 10 p.m. Central Daylight Time, the South Dakota State Poetry Society will be hosting their Electronic Poetry Garden. You can find out more information at artssouthdakota.org forward slash event. Again, that's at artssouthdakota.org forward slash event. On Friday, October 15th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British Time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information by messaging the host Andrina Leanne at survivor.andrina.leanne on Instagram. That's survivor.andrena dot L-E-E-A-N-N-E on Instagram. From 7 p.m. West Africa time, Graciano and Warham and Nopal Flower will be hosting their Coronaverses open mic via Instagram Live. You can find out more information at Graciano and Warham. That's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7.20 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Hudson Valley Writer Center will be hosting their open mic night hosted by Bill Bushel. You can find out more information at writerscenter.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's at writerscenter.org forward slash calendar. On Saturday, October 16th, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. India Standard Time, our past poet guest, Umesh Mohikar, will be hosting his Let's Amesh Life open mic. You can find out more information at Let's Amesh Life on Instagram or Facebook. Again, that's at Let's Amesh Life on Instagram or Facebook. From 6 to 7 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, the Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their poetry collective reading. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. On Sunday, October 17th, from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, the Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Writing for Happiness and Stress Relief for those between the ages of 12 and 14 with Allison Preston. You can find out more information and register at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Keep the Mic On will be hosting their weekly poetry event. You can find out more information at keepthemicon.com. Again, that's at keepthemicon.com. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, David Eggleton. 
Hi, David. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hello. Glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you getting on here. So you brought with you the poem "Republic of Fiji." Before、yes. we get into that, however, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I live in New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand. I live on the South Island of New Zealand, way down south, next stop Antarctica.、Uh-huh. Um, and uh, basically, I moved here from Auckland. So I、uh, was born and educated in Auckland, and I've spent time in Fiji, which is where my mother's from.、Mm. And I also was educated at,、um, as a child in Fiji. So I grew up there as a child,、uh, and then our family、uh, migrated or moved to New Zealand way back, and I've lived here ever since.、So、I do return to Fiji periodically, and、I、have many relatives and、um, family over there. Right. It seems like the country has stabilized. Since you wrote yes. your poem,、uh, under、um, Baini Marama, it seems to have stabilised. There are lots of grumblings below, going on amongst、uh, discontented people. But in general, he seems to have done quite well in in stabilising the country. Basically, yes. If you don't mind letting us know how you got into writing poetry, well,、uh, I've always been interested in poetry. I was writing at school. I've always been a keen reader,、mm-hmm. and I started there with the kind of reading lots of books and、uh, as a child, and、um, a bit against the grain because reading's not wasn't really part of our family tradition except for the Bible、mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. at Sunday school and singing church hymns,、That's、which is where、that. I got acquainted with really rich language,、uh, the language of the Song of Solomon and.、Uh, The Psalms and so forth, and that that sort of went in very deep to my consciousness, and that I kind of absorbed that very rich King James English language,、mm. and、uh, it's sort of I think、uh, it's still a major reservoir of、uh, inspiration for me.、Yeah. Um, and the other, yeah, as I mentioned, was basically just reading widely,、um, and for some reason I, I was kind of more into reading than than. My peers and kind of just、uh, stuck with it. So,、um, <laughs> and I guess another aspect to consider is actually because our family did migrate here from Fiji, we were kind of outsiders. So,、mm-hmm. uh, a lot of New Zealand was a bit strange to us.、Mm-hmm. Um, my father was actually from England,、mm-hmm. so he was like a migrant himself.、Mm-hmm. When he married my mother and, and then brought our family to Fiji after that, it was kind of not really done in those days. So, the,、right. the, the kind of、uh, Um, cross-cultural kind of relationships were frowned on,、mm. and、uh, as a consequence of that, we did feel like outsiders, and and I, I kind of struggled with that a bit. And certainly, I know my brothers and sisters did as well.、Mm. Um, they had more serious issues around, I guess, racism、mm. um, and a certain amount of class snobbery and. A whole lot of things where where New Zealand in those days was quite insular and and kind of cut off and very English and very prim and proper and almost Puritan in its、mm. kind of、um, expectations of behaviour and so therefore、um, Maori and Polynesian were cast as the other and regarded as、uh, a, a, a sort of、um, not really. A model to emulate, and at that time,、mm-hmm. so things have flipped around quite a lot now, and so a Maori and Polynesian Pacifica culture, on the contrary, is seen as something to to emulate and, and to identify with for for all New Zealanders,、yeah. um, pretty much. It's a wonderful so, turnabout. Yeah, definitely. It, it began in the 1980s, so it's been underway for a while, 
and it really took off in the 1990s. So, so for about 25 years now, there's been a, a very conscious wish to become uh, identified as part of the South Pacific and as and as belonging to Polynesia and to this part of the world, to Moana, Oceania, which is like embraces the uh, Samoa, Tonga, uh, Tokelau, all the different islands, many different um, small island nations uh, which surround New Zealand much more so than Australia. Australia's a completely different case and has a very different outlook on things. So, mm. um, And I think now what's happening is with uh, under Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister, we're certainly forging this new identity as a, a leading nation in uh, representing um, issues, dealing with issues and problems around you know, climate change and so on and so forth. Yeah, I was uh, looking at the map. As I said, I was reading a little bit about Fiji history earlier and realized that Vanuatu it's very close to you guys so you you know exactly you're at the frontier of climate change pretty much yeah um, Fiji is three hours flying time from from uh, Auckland mm. um, so I was there I was there a month ago catching up with family and so forth and I went to the third largest islands who are to visit uh, um, my cousin's uh, relatives and uh, Kandavu. Kandavu, um, we went to a, a, an, an island near Kandavu, a smaller island, which mm. is owned by one tribe. Mm-hmm. And there they showed me where the water had come up something like 30 metres, um, oh 90 God. feet um, in the past uh, 20, uh, maybe 30 or 40 years. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's definitely happening there, and you can see it. And they showed me where there was a plantation, which is now underwater, wow. um, and also an area where the whalers used to... Um, uh, back in the 19th century, Nantucket whalers were also in that area, and they used to uh, harbour their ships, which is now all completely underwater. You can see way down there's a wharf, way way down under the water. So, the, 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 yeah, the sea levels are rising for sure as a real real issue there. Yeah, yeah. it's really scary to think about, and for you to actually experience it. And yeah, and the, the increased ferocity of the storms, which is something you've got in the United States, of course, is with the yes. hurricanes yes. growing in ferocity all the time. But, but we've, we've got that here as well with hurricanes uh, happening. Uh, um, we usually feel the edge of the hurricanes down here in, in, in the south, but we've had associated problems like extreme drought. Then we have all the sort of all the rain, all the months' rainfall in one day, or even a year's rainfall and a week's kind of thing. So really yeah. bizarre changes in the in the weather um, compared to what we used to have certainly four or five decades ago. Right. Yeah, that's what Vaughn was telling me as well. Um, and also, according to scientific reports and projections, is that as you said, extreme weather is more likely, more frequent, and more um, the norm now than before. Um, yeah, so things are changing, and I've always wanted my poetry to to be very immediate and accessible to people, and to talk about to talk about things which affect us all directly as a community of, here in New Zealand, but also in the global context. And so I do write about those kinds of things, but not directly or overtly. Instead, it, it sort of feeds into my writing in other ways, and, and I look for metaphors and other kind of ways of crafting ideas about change in poetry. Yeah, I saw that in the poem that you sent me, the Republic of Fiji poem in itself, it starts out with water. And I think when you live in that environment, you can't help but incorporate that aspect of it because it's so much of your life. Yeah, the great uh, Tongan philosopher, Epili Haofa, 
uh, described um, us as living in a sea of islands. Mm. You talked about Polynesia, Melanesia, which are actually terms applied by um, anthropologists and the you know, ancestors um, hundreds of years ago thought of it as one entity with the Pacific Ocean as kind of even as far as Hawaii back down to uh, Tahiti across to New Caledonia, all that area was like one kind of continent really, but made of water with all these islands dotted throughout and there was constant toing and froing and, and canoes and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah um, water is a, pr- a primal element for us here in these islands for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of where you start really. Right. Well, if you don't mind giving us a demonstration of that and, and read your poem for us and then we can talk about it some more. Sure. I'll just preface this poem by saying that I wrote it in uh, 2001, so it's, it goes back a ways, but and it's, it's about growing up in Fiji mm-hmm. and, and looking back at that and at the changes that were taking place. So, so around that time, so it was the time of the coup culture. Mm-hmm. Um, Bainimarama came to power uh, um, a year or so after this poem mm-hmm. was completed. So it's a poem called uh, Republic of Fiji. Fiji became a republic in 1972 um, after the British withdrew. So formerly it was a British colony. Mm-hmm. Then it became the Republic of Fiji in the early 1970s. Fringed by saltwater lace, the abandoned ship, British Empire, drifts through isles of amnesia, awaiting colonial mutual evaluation. A shell roars inside the sea, calling to islands, and islands surface like turtles in the rain. Rain white as mosquito net, white as grated coconut, white as the helmets of ex-governor generals. Rain white like the walls of Suva City Jail, walls which hold bloody hibiscus, bruised mango, and crims who blow smoke at a dead volcano. Orchids nod to sermons of the wet season. Jungle is green ink bleeding into sludge. Rain erases the movie of the great outdoors, that soaked brouhaha of palm trees threshing in a mare's nest of trade wind tails and trails. As coconuts arc like Basketballs for the hoop, woven baskets, tropical plunder, steaming. Today's Talibar is scar, joining scar to scar, while Ant Hill streets relay a taboo beat to the black swish of Ratu, Sir Lala Sukunu's Sulu. Suva's sweatshop sews all into one shark skin, when call of shark god pounding grog begins, muddy kava slurped up from a coconut bowl drives us further into earth at each small go. It is land divers free-falling to Pentecost. It is skull binders bound for Vanuatu. It is rafts of pumice fragments floating to Fiji. It is a World War II submarine still under sea. It's encrusted fire coral and brain coral battery lighting up the Pacific with Republican dreams. The red eye of the cobra coil burns to nothing. Dengi spits a gob of gold into the sky over Nandi and knocks heads of gods together, sucks out sap 
He shoulders a coconut sack, walks to market, as if hauling an island along the sea's horizon, around reefs, black and white sea snakes spiral. The Bulla boys' shirts are prayer flags in rags, their thatch roof a top hat, Krishna's bus, their chariot, carrying them on fire wheels whose spokes are knives along dirt roads where cane fields escalate into fire. Thank you. There's just so much imagery. I feel like there's so much of the culture that's coming through. Yeah, to me it's, it's memories and images of things I've experienced, mm-hmm. all kind of woven together right. uh, to make it kind of like a ceremonial basket that might hold them all, all these images. And they are transportable that way yeah. as a poem. And I can hand them out and then hand it out again to different people. So it's a way of sharing my experiences. And then how does it hold together? I call it a, a, a sort of a weaving of imagery. Well, I think it's the tone of voice, the kind of attitude, which is uh, partly um, elegiac, remembering, yeah. but also yeah. partly sardonic. Uh, because of the uh, Fiji's a third world country with a lot of problems, mm-hmm. uh, economic and political, social, um, and uh, in some ways it's got similarities with uh, in the Caribbean mm-hmm. countries like Haiti, but not quite as severe. But nevertheless, there's elements of that Trinidad and Tobago, those places, kind of places, because it's it's been the subject of colonial um, struggle, the British, the Germans, and then the Australians and the New Zealanders, and, and more recently the Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, have all been competing, you know, to exert di- diplomatic power there and, and control things and, and um, run things. And so the locals also want to just live their lives, and, and yet they're caught up in, you know, in global uh, geopolitical machinations. And, and, and so that filled us through as well. And, and yet there's also this uh, tourist image of it being a really lovely place full of uh, resorts and uh, you know, blue skies and blue ocean and you can go snorkeling and all that kind of stuff. And so that's part of it as well. Yeah, I love how you use the, I'm imagining, native fruits of the island to talk about the people. Um, mm. Fruits and fauna and floral images that one does associate with the tourist aspect of Fiji, and that's what people think about when they're far yes. away, like I, me. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I think as I, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned um, bruised mango, you know, so you've got the lovely mangoes that grow there, but there's a sense that they're kind of maybe there's a bit of corruption within festering away or, or they've been damaged in some way. Uh, so as, as, as symbols, yes, I mean, I actually they run through a lot of my poetry, uh, fruits and flowers, which have sens- sensuous associations and the perfumes that when you're actually in Fiji, it's like any tropical country. It's, it's rich in uh, aromas and, and smells and, mm-hmm. and even stinks, but they're very strong. They, they, they sort of enter you and fill your consciousness, and they, they mark a place. They mark a territory that yeah. you're in, and, and that's the territory that you kind of carry around in your head for a while as a, as a memory of a place. And if you're there for a package holiday, it's much more, uh, in a way, sterile. But but I lived there as a child, so I guess that that's it's, uh, it's it's grown into me. It's like organically grafted on to, to my consciousness. That's that's where, where I come from. And yet they're quite benign uh, images. 
uh, and therefore how do you use these things like hibiscus and mango and coconuts and and talk about them to mean more than they seem and and, and the way they do mean more because uh, there's a complex cuisine actually um, featuring these items and, and more so now in the 21st century so mm-hmm. so yeah I'm interested in the idea of paradox in poetry so you say one thing you maybe don't quite mean that you actually mean something else there's all these layers and levels and that's what I love about poetry and the use of language to to convey a sense of what it's like to be alive now in the world that's what I try to do with my poetry right right there's a, the layering of not just um, you're yeah. sort of it looks like you're scraping your fingernails against this, the beauty, the veneer of... Very much, people. yeah. It's the textures of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so the five senses are what I always go back to. I mean, yeah. uh, William Blake taught us that, you know. Mm-hmm. We perceive the world through our five senses, yeah. Yeah. I want to f- find out from you who is the he in the character who kind of comes in really, really strongly in the last stanza. I think he's kind of like a, a symbolic Fijian. Mm. When I was uh, there just uh, in the new year, I was driving with my brother from Suva mm-hmm. to Nandi uh, along the main road. And the main road is a highway. But it's not quite a motorway. It's actually got villages all the way along it. So every time you come to a village, there are jadabars. They're important because all the way along the side of the road, there are people walking, carrying bags, carrying sacks. And that's the kind of guy, the kind of figure I was trying to get at there. So he's he's a symbolic figure. He's also a figure that, that I know from members of my family who... Who, um, so I'm talking about cousins, second cousins, third cousins, a whole, a whole kind of family tree that's with enormous kind of intertwined branches and roots. Uh, and so he's a representative figure, if you like, of the villager who still kind of survives by working in the plantation and taking produce to, to the market and often having to walk to the market or hitch a lift. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes get one of the village buses, but at any rate, they go to the mar- one of the markets, either in Suva or in Lautoka or Singatoka, and uh, just put their produce down on the sack and sit beside it and wait for someone to come along and buy it, and that's how they make a, a living. Yeah, that kind of so, so you know, it's as basic as that. Wow, it's interesting that you put him all the way to the last stanza because he grounds the poem. It's almost like a postcard where you go with the big picture and then you zoom in yep. and zoom in some more and then you go all the way down to the person and then the description of the person. Yeah, that's a good point. The way it kind of funnels in to that one representative figure is sort of like a vortex or whirlwind, a cyclonic kind of movement or, or a spiral, if you like. And where it ends up is with the moment where there's actually change going on. One thing that the coups were all about was the feeling of threat, villages feeling threatened by various geopolitical forces. And, and, and in this case, it was um, some of the Fijian chiefs telling them that the Indians were going to take away their land. Mm-hmm. But there was also kind of just tensions around various um, charlatans offering um, gullible people the chance to maybe share and plunder and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea of the Buller boys who were kind of like just a, a out-of-work youth who kind of make their living by almost begging or just that kind of thing. So they were vulnerable to this idea that they could form into a gang, a gang of nationalist thugs and kind of rampage through the city as they did in the 2000s. Uh, And then they burned down much of the capital at that time. One thing Bainimarama has done is kind of put the lid on that. He's kind of stopped all that. He's had to exert 
a lot of kind of military control and some of the things he's done people disagree with right. but you have to credit him with having with as you said stabilizing the place when you say you lived there how long did you live there for i lived there as a child so my parents came over to new zealand so that me and my two brothers and sister were all born in new zealand in order that we should have new zealand citizenship mm -hmm. then we went back to uh, fiji and stayed there until we came back for high school oh. uh, so we're there for a while but our particular situation was slightly more privileged so my mother kind of escaped from that kind of poverty I've been talking about, village poverty, by marrying my father, who was in the New Zealand Armed Services. Oh. He was stationed there as a part of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. The institution of the Air Force were very anti this marriage. But anyway, he actually got a lawyer to help him make sure the marriage went ahead and so forth. So, so that was part of the tension that we had. And so that was one reason why they decided to make sure we were okay in later life we'd come to New Zealand. Now, it's still quite difficult for Fijians to settle in, in New Zealand unless they're very wealthy. Um, but New Zealand has agreements with other Pacific nations. It, it took over the, the colonial administration role after the end of the British Empire around the mid-20th century. And, and since then, it's tried to be benign and conduct a, a sort of a... Uh, an enlightened policy and uh, allow lots of people from the islands and Pacific Islanders in. But they came in originally as sort of low, on the lower socioeconomic level. They brought over as labourers. And even now there's still the issues around workers from the islands coming to New Zealand. Right, right. Because the British was the colonial power, I wonder what that was like for you and your siblings to be seen as perhaps not one or the other. Yeah, we were definitely in the middle. There was a lot in New Zealand society in the 60s that was kind of hidden. Mm -hmm. So you had these tensions, but they were never spoken about. Many people have no longer acknowledged just how divided and monocultural New Zealand was. It was all about assimilation. It was believed that the Maori were dying out, for instance, that they had to be <laughs> absorbed into the greater population, Pākehā or European population. So for our family, we kind of had, had those things going on. And I guess uh, I was um, good at academic subjects, so I, I kind of managed to skim over the surface of that. My immediate brother was less successful, and he had a lot of trouble with the law and police. And, and because he looked more like a Pacific Islander than I do, he was constantly being harassed by the police and being stopped. Mm -hmm. um, and he got very resentful in that. It was only really with the actions of my father um, managed to stop him ending up winding up in jail kind of thing by um, sort of going to lawyers and pleading with the various officials to get him out of trouble. And so for years he was quite angry. He's quite different now. He eventually went to university and got three degrees and so forth. So mm. he was mm. right, but he, he had to deal with those kinds of prejudices at that time, which would said that because you look this way, you're obviously not going to get anywhere and you're destined to wind up in, in a lot of trouble. So my other brother was another interesting case in that he is now a kind of well-established uh, Polynesian artist in California. Um, mm. He lives in San Francisco and works with indigenous Native Americans, helping them reconstruct carvings because he's an expert master carver in Polynesian carving and helping them reconstruct carvings of their traditional uh, lodges and things mm -hmm. um, from the 19th century. 
My sister managed to um, avoid a lot of these stresses and strains that, that were around, and, and she also has got a good job, middle-class job kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we were in a way privileged, I'd say, because actually my father was quite an enlightened mm-hmm. kind of guy because it, it was, the reason for that was partly due to his own situation where he came from. He had a lot of problems, um, so he was not a privileged person to begin with, but mm-hmm. he managed to create by emigrating from Britain and joining the military, actually, I should say, it was good for him because it gave him an education and gave him a structure, and he worked his way through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of why he managed to be successful at that particular time mm-hmm. um, through working his way up through the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got out. He was sort of um, both a conformist and a nonconformist at the same time, so he was uh, quite pretty smart in his own way. And, mm-hmm. um, my mother came from... Um, a complicated background where her father was actually a Rituman, a Rituman islander. Rituma is a small uh, Polynesian island which has, was incorporated into the Fiji group of islands by the British. Mm-hmm. The people are actually more similar to the Tongans and the Samoans, but they have a distinctive language. Okay. Um, and my grandmother is Tongan, uh-huh. so my grandfather's maternal grandfather's Rituman, my maternal grandmother's Tongan, mm-hmm. and the other side of the family is a complete mystery because my father was raised in an orphanage, so mm-hmm. I'm made up of all these uh, disparate elements, and I've kind of <laughs> worked with them. Mm. That's really interesting. Wow. As I said, I was reading a little bit about Fijian history, and I read that the word Fiji actually come from Tongan, so it's um, yeah. it's kind of a foreign yeah. uh, designation of. That's right. Well, it's very complicated. The more you go into it, back in the day, Tonga was the dominant Polynesian nation, uh-huh. and and it kind of conquered uh, surrounding territories, uh-huh. and it was always warring and sparring with the Fijians and and the Samoan. Uh, so they would send war parties over in canoes to uh, Fiji. And so they conquered the outlying islands, the islands closest to Tonga, mm-hmm. uh, had a lot of Tongan influence. And then the kind of Fijians fought back. And so the Fijians actually formed an alliance with the British uh, in the mid-19th century to consolidate themselves and resist the Tongans. And that's kind of when the... But the Tongans always maintained their independence. So if you go into, into the history, there's various... Elements which kind of explain why it's not all it seems on the on the surface. It's, it's just there's been a lot of tension and friction going all the way back. Um, mm. I guess that was true of true of a lot of places. So there's just a distinctive history of this region. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, India as well. I feel like the British did leverage the internal conflicts of many of places that yeah, it colonized. Yeah, I talked to someone from India about this yesterday, and they were saying how English actually became a unifying language mm-hmm. uh, so because they had all these different dialects and different languages in different parts of India. Right, uh, and, so, right. and so they, even today, uh, English is, is used as, as the unifying language. Mm. Yeah, different kingdoms, I guess. I guess it's the English way of saying it. What made you decide to write this particular poem? Um, well, <laughs> lots of reasons. I'm always looking for things to write about. Uh, it's an instinctive drive to write, and I wanted to write about this this time. I actually went back to... Fiji with my mother to her school reunion in Levuka mm. just before this. And so that's when the flood of memories came back to me. And it kind of that, it, it actually results from that trip in 1999, which is where the bulk of the poem came from. Mm. Um, but this coup culture, which started under Colonel Rambuka in, in 1986, 
Mm-hmm. And then there was another coup and then another coup. And the whole place was kind of very much knocked around by these, these coups. It went on, it went on right up until, until about 2005 when, when, I mean, Brahma has kind of calmed things down a lot. There's still under a lot of, a lot of aspects to it. I have a cousin who's, was charged with staging the coup and he has an accomplice and he's still in jail. He's been in jail. Wow. 20 years. He was head of the military, I've been not saying any names, but heavily involved with military intelligence um, back then. What happened was rival groups of Fijian chiefs were competing for power, basically mm-hmm. power politics, and he got caught up with that and, and kind of uh, followed the wrong group. <laughs> and so you know, it's, it goes on. The results are not over by any means. It's, mm-hmm. it's still around. So it has, it has a distinctive culture and, and, and affected by the colonial and before that, by the rivalry between different island groups back to the 17th century and before the arrival of Captain Cook even. Um, yeah. You can't ideologically say the picture is, is simply like this. It's, instead, it's like grayscale. It's a, it's a complicated picture with different things emerging at different times depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And you see patterns which uh, are being concealed by other patterns and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's hard to, especially given how large a role colonialism played once it took hold, it overshadows all the gray skills in many ways. Yeah, a new population arrived here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But, you know, you have to be a historian to go into all the little, you know, the whalers were kind of welcomed Let's say the sealers were kind of welcomed by some groups and and disparaged by other groups. Um, So, mm, yeah. When it comes to identity politics, my own situation is is very complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think everyone's is ultimately. But I don't really – I mean, I I admire poets like Terence Hayes. He's got a – the American poet who wrote uh, American Sonnets to My Past and Future Assassin. Now, mm-hmm. that is a great book, uh, which came out maybe 2017. The American political poetry, which deals with that whole kind of struggle against powerlessness as a black American, what, mm-hmm. what has happened over the centuries. New Zealand, uh, Pacific, it's not quite like that. We had kind of different things going on here and, and kind of different relationships were formed because uh, though there was enslavement, I must say that it was not something you associate with New Zealand. It happened more in Australia. So Australia is a completely different case. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not talking about Australia at all, but multicultural relations in New Zealand uh, are not perfect. I just saw a statistic in the paper which said that Maori and Pacific Islanders are even today, in, in 2020, more likely to end up um, unfavourably viewed in the court system mm-hmm. and experience injustice than other ethnic groups. Yeah. So it goes on. So, so um, I'm thinking when you were talking about your experience as opposed to your brothers, the the one who face uh, prejudice just based on looks, it reminded me of the racial profiling. But as you said, it's very different, right? Because African Americans were brought specifically; they they were they were stolen from their homeland and brought yeah. here specifically to become chattel slaves and then continuously been disparaged as given certain negative stereotypes, negative associations, despite the fact that... Yeah, it's it's deeply ingrained in the the mentality, basically, of the South 
yeah. why it imported those people and the rationalizations that they, those plantation owners used right. when they well, bought that slave labor in yeah, uh, and persist today over yeah. there. So, and it's much more extreme and more pathological, I think, in the United States. So they haven't really found a way around that because of the whole way this culture there is, is constructed yeah, we quite haven't, a history for us. Yeah, we haven't really dealt with it directly or even <laughs> indirectly. It's, it's not just the South, it's the North as well. And I feel like sometimes the North does not look at itself as part of that history despite the fact that it was part of that history because the North not only served as the markets, um, mm. the entry points, but they also benefited from the labor of the plantation slaves in the South with um, cotton, with the manufacturing of cotton-made goods. So it's yeah. neither part, neither section of the U.S. can really escape their participation, passive or otherwise, uh, or directly in the slave trade. And I feel like in some ways, perhaps the South, because they're made to look at it more, perhaps, um, I don't know because I haven't lived in the South, but sometimes when I encounter people from the South, I feel like they're forced to look at it more. And that actually helps with the progress, with the understanding of it more. Sometimes. Yeah, I'd agree, agree with that to an extent. Um, yeah. I've been reading a lot of the uh, novels of Attica Locke, who's a black American novelist who writes thrillers set in um, Texas. Mm. Texas, you know, it's like, it's like a lot of the United States feeling that each state has got its own kind of way of looking at the world. Yes. But, but there she talks about black history and the complex way it's intertwined with the history and how, but how things have become much more polarized, the Aryan Brotherhood and, and these extreme right, far-right nationalists coming up, mm. um, who have actually, when they look at history, they cherry-pick and they only take out you know, what suits their, their worldview. Yes. So that kind of makes a justification for their nastiness and so forth. She tells the narrative as a, as a kind of this constant tension between, so there's this black Texas ranger who has to deal with white landowners and things like that. So it's a standoff, a perpetual standoff. And, and what often happens is it proceeds with ambiguities and misunderstandings, and sometimes the misunderstandings are, are profitable. You know, so truth is uh, quite a, a slippery commodity there and uh, <laughs> In Texas and, and I think to other parts of the United States, you know, and and we we don't actually have that history here. We we have aspects of it, but because we have a strong central government, they have tended to um, centralise things. So when things happen, uh, we have a wide range of responses, but it tends to be what you might think of as transparent. So what goes on is fairly transparent, um, in the sense that that action is taken. So. When it, when we see a statistic like in this morning's paper saying that Maori and Polynesians are un, unfavourably um, treated by the justice system, there will be active changes made to to address that. Now, you know, I get the feeling that in the United States you can have similar issues raised, but nothing's done about it, or it's kind of it, it disappears into another. It's kind of wormhole problem. So, well, especially now because of <laughs> who's in charge and. 
the way we're kind of spiraling out of control in that mm. in in the direction towards right wing extremism, and yeah. then also the backlash from left wing extremism as well. Well, um, the thing is, I think it's it's, it's good you've got an activist uh, candidate uh, going up there in in the form of Bernie Sanders, and I mean <laughs> doing appearances with like the uh, rap group uh, Black Black uh, Power. Was it was it Black? Um, the uh, is it Black Power? The uh, rap group Chuck D and uh, Flavor Flavor Flav. They're doing a concert together somewhere. Oh, um, Los Angeles. But but you know, I think it's good you've got Bernie Sanders there as this emblematic figure. Now that's about polarization because he's you know he's extremely to the left. But I think it's a good thing that he's actually the candidate. Well, potential candidate think, in <laughs> I think if he was, you know, in Europe, I don't think people would look at him as a lefty extremist because he's, Indeed. yeah, it's more of context. In the U.S., I feel like our left, you know, most of the Democratic Party, people from mm. the Democratic Party will probably fall to the right of, let's say, British politicians or politics, yes. Yes. which is, it's kind of amazing because... <laughs> You know, yeah. Theresa May, yeah. for instance, was absolutely anti-immigrant. So, you know, but for her, even a lot of what we as American politicians are go too far, you know. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny um, that way, taken the, the panic that mainstream media seem to reflect in the American population having Bernie Sanders surge. It's kind of, in a way, funny if I was not living in it. (laughs) Living in it is scary. It has science fiction elements, but then everything in the States does have that. And it has had for a long time. The current problems go back a ways, and and you can talk about the the 2008 crisis uh, and the Reaganism and lots of different things. And so fiction and poetry are ways of kind of responding to that. I mean, I, I think that the therapeutic element of poetry is good. I like to um, go along to poetry readings and hear poets read works about their own grievances coming through. Mm-hmm. And because as they speak them, they kind of transform themselves and they have a transcendental element. So I enjoy yeah. that. I, I go to lots of poetry readings to hear all kinds of poetry. And I think that's good. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like politics as well, the trauma that comes with, at least from my perspective, from a U.S. perspective, the trauma that comes with the current political climate, part of the trauma is being denied, is being told from up down, especially that somehow what we believe in this human rights, equal rights is not valid. That, yeah. You know, that has a therapeutic aspect of having poetry that talks about it because yeah. it's being heard. And then by talking about it, by sharing it with people who are listening to it and understand, understand yeah. what we're trying to say. Yeah. I mean, that's right. They form, that's part of the community, forming communities, which, which kind of link up. Exactly. Um, the readings are going on all over the nation, uh, and and authentic uh, emotions are being expressed, but crafted through through careful use of language. Yeah. And that's because people have to think twice about what they're saying and so forth. So that's where poetry does uh, service 
to the community. Mm. It does, it does. And that comes neatly to, to my poem, which is reflective of this particular times that we're living in. So I'm right. going to read that now. Um, okay. It's called Topsy Turvy. Our transition into bizarro land is nearly complete. We now have to learn facts from comedy shows and get our emotional kicks from real politics, all the more visceral since we're gambling with personal stakes. After all, a clown can blow us up into smithereens. As news edges into infotainment, headlines fitting the onion in 2014 now run on mastheads of serious outlets. No wonder we've elected a reality TV star president without containment. This postmodern social media stew can only be cooked by the hands of likes, stirring media into the right mix, blending lines of genres for the fix. Without a following to prop up the stage, no celeb survives long in this day and age. In this jungle of our own making, we once again tout the survival of the fittest, and its curdled cream did rise to the top, boiling atop with orange spice, muting the subtlety of other flavors. The Scoville scale now our only gauge. If there's a way to turn down the heat, we haven't reached for it in any concerted feat. In this trajectory, if we continue, we're projected to burn down the venue. But who am I to stand here and preach? I did write this with hope for higher scores reach. Our bandwagon is driven by the momentum of those who pile on even as we look down, wagging fingers of disapproval while building followings of approval. Is there a real way out of this rat race without becoming a hermit with a long face? Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like the rhythm there, the uh, and the, the pacing and uh, the, the delivery. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what is the Scoville scale? It's a scale that measures the spiciness of peppers. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, well, it all fits. So that's got a culinary kind of uh, <laughs> motif or thread running through there. That's good. Yeah. And brings it back to the domestic, which is kind of where we all live anyway. Um, yeah. And the way you've woven everything, a colorful kind of recipe you've come up with there. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I. I, meant, I enjoy, enjoyed it. I enjoyed hearing it, yeah. I appreciate that. I meant to ask you previously about your journey, right, from a spoken word artist to becoming the poet laureate of the country. I wonder if uh, you ever thought that would be where you would end up or, you know, where you would be at this stage of your life when you first started. Uh, no, uh, I definitely, um, well, I had a lot of trouble getting published when I was beginning and I was coming from, I guess, a very extreme position, as I said, like an outsider. Back in the early eighties and late seventies, I was publishing my first poems and they were not, I tended to have to get up at poetry readings and read them. And often I'd, I'd get sort of incomprehensional or blank looks. Um, <laughs> then I started sort of reading my stuff with, with punk rock bands um, at, at punk rock venues and, and hotel pubs and cafes and things and, and, and making a bit more of an impact there. So that was really where I got my grounding is 
isn't in that kind of alternative community, mm-hmm. post-hippie kind of urban dissatisfaction, people, uh, that kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and um, that kind of where I, I um, nursed my uh, talents, I guess, into poems that, that could communicate, which is my first instinct was to write stuff that, that was about my situation and the situation of those around me and, and talk about that. And then only later did I start to get poems published in mag- magazines and, and literary journals mm-hmm. um, and get, a, get an offer from Penguin Books to bring out my first collection of poems in 1986. At that point, I wasn't quite as accepted by the establishment, but I, they were, became more aware of me. And then from there, I guess it's just a long haul of writing um, getting rejections like every other writer and, and persevering and following my own instincts, uh, what I was interested in doing. I also was, at this point, writing other kinds of things. Uh, I was doing a lot of art, reviewing, uh, book reviewing, uh, art journalism and contributing to the thriving print culture that we had going on in the 1990s and through into the 2000s. Then I put out books about New Zealand culture on photography and art and rock music and things. And so that kind of, I guess, all added up. And then I became editor of the the leading literary periodical. And that was kind of like these things happen usually uh, not as a result of misunderstandings, but, but people are <laughs> – I see people have the expectations and they want certain things to happen. Right, and they think right. you're the go-to person who can make them happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't agree with everything you're doing, but you seem to be – have the ability to make things happen, so we'll, we'll choose you to do this. And so that's kind of how it happened that I got some of these roles right. um, <laughs> because I, I could make things happen in a sense like I could edit magazines and I could I could encourage younger writers, I could encourage different kinds of writers to, to participate. And I didn't have a lot of hang-ups. In the literary scene, as you probably know, they're often a bit cliquey and, and – groups form that actually identify themselves by keeping others out. Um, so I, I tended to have a more eclectic, uh, universalist, Catholic approach and enjoyed bringing together disparate writers and kind of seeing what would happen. Sparks would fly, not in a negative way, but, but they were all contributing to this to this notion of what the nation of Aotearoa New Zealand could be. So that was right. kind of like a driving force for me. And it coincided with the official narrative of where, where are we going uh, in our little sort of um, group of archipelago of islands here in the South Pacific. And so all these things, I was part of that kind of wave or momentum. Mm-hmm. And now still a bit of regarded as an outsider and, and still hear mutterings by different <laughs> uh, um, questioning whether well, what I write is really poetry. Mm-hmm. But that, that's, that's faded now because in this new age, I mean, who knows what poetry is? It's just what sort of moves you and, and, and gets through to you right. using language. So, so, so anything goes in a way as so long as it's convincing and authentic and meaningful and has an emotional drive to it, an emotional pitch. So so that's where I'm at. And um, I guess that just by sticking around as well for, for uh, um, being a veteran of the poetry scene and uh, I've arrived at this point where they offered it to me. I was shoulder tapped or, or an invitation arrived out of the blue and they said, well, the panel has decided and public vote as well. We take these things into consideration. Um, you're the guy um, who might be poet laureate for – similar to the American system, for a set period, right. and then they hand it on to someone else. And so my role is really as an activist poet to to bring poetry to the general populace and, and 
make increase awareness of the poetry generally and um, reach out to help other poets be heard as well as part of it. Yeah, um, yeah. And just generally, generally increase the uh, energy levels in, in um, the literary scene um, via, via poetry. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess part of it is because that you have your finger in so many pies, as it were, and, and you are able to bring in poets from different parts of the country and different genres of poetry. Well, that's what I try to do, yes. I believe in that. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a cul-de-sac or a dead end for poets to form little groups which exclude other possibilities in poetry. It's a kind of elitism which uh, has its merits up to a point in that they say, well, we're, we're purists about language and we believe these things about language is just why we write this kind of poetry. And, and I kind of agree with that, but if it's not really saying anything outside the rules, suppose mm-hmm. it's larger than that. So the best poets in any genre or, or sub-division or, or school of poetry um, tend to be able to speak to more people. Yeah. They tend to be able to speak to outside their group. The other day I was looking at my poetry books because uh, I, I collect New Zealand poets. Mm. And, and so <laughs> inevitably I've got hundreds and hundreds of thin pamphlets and, and slim volumes of verse um, produced over the past 40 years, I'd say, um, of, of work. And uh, it's amazing just how many people have written poetry and published it in this country. Mm. It's a tremendous cottage industry, but it's obviously a tremendously important means of people talking even far to themselves and a few friends, right. what life means to them, what their existence means to them, and what living in this country means to them, and living on this planet means to them, and, and how they want to share this and using the best words they know and the best way they can communicate. These things are important for me and for them and I think for everyone, you know, it's a healthy community. And then you start complicating with other points. Well, what are they actually talking about? What are their ideas? What are they saying? Are their ideas good or bad? And what I go for is the genuineness of the feeling mm-hmm. in this instance. And then we can work from that. We can talk about how, well, language is a giveaway. The way you use language, is, it's not your language. It belongs to everyone. So, therefore, how you choose your words from the common wheel, the common polity of what words are, what language is, what English language I'm talking about in particular, but it's inflected with Maori here in this country. Mm-hmm. It's about how you reach in and take those words out and set, assemble them. That tells a lot about you. Yeah. And, and it gives away a lot about you. And, and so <laughs> yeah. you can't hide, you know, your poetry reveals who you are. So I'm fascinated by that. Sometimes, of course, it doesn't reveal people immediately. You have to kind of triangulate and you go around and then you see the whole structure, what they really mean, and you get it. And sometimes you have to look for clues yeah. outside poems. But but eventually the poem will tell you, with these perhaps with added clues, but you will get the communication, whether good or bad. Mm. And I mean whether, whether good poetry or bad poetry, sometimes it's it poems, they have to crawl away and, and sort of die in corners because they and, and it's, it's sort of, you discover this when you go back and look at these, I discover this, these books that I've had for such a long time and I think, what had happened to that poem, what had happened to those poems, no one reads them anymore, but there they are. Some of them actually have still got a beating heart mm-hmm. and I was thinking, maybe I should bring an anthology out of these unjustly neglected poems, but there are others which are justly neglected. <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> 
their poems are of the times, right? And sometimes when the time has passed and they mm. people no longer relate to them, um, mm. like this poem that I read, for instance, is very of the moment. <laughs> and, uh, unless you're somebody who's both interested in poetry and history, um, yes. you might not be able to relate to it after a while, I, I hope, because I don't really want this condition that I'm describing in my poem to continue. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe it's a more immediate poem and it's written for a particular time. Yes, as you say, mm-hmm. there are those sorts of poems. They, sometimes they can be collected as examples of what was happening in poetry then, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, that's a possibility. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any questions for me about my poem or no, um, I mean, it's it's there on the surface, the meaning. There's another layer below it, which I think of as identifying you as a poet who lives in America. Mm. Uh, I think it's just the way you, you the mix of elements that, that speak to that recipe idea. Um, <laughs> so when I say that, I th- I'm, I'm rethinking that. I'm thinking, well, maybe I mean it's actually more an international context where American culture is so influential and so ubiquitous that 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 when you say something in in the states, we understand what it means immediately over here, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Well, so you threw me with that Scoville value reference. <laughs> um, I hadn't come across that before, um, and I was thinking, was well, that some some historical incident took <laughs> place, kind of thing? So that was kind of interesting for me. Mm. So I have the same kind of um, general knowledge that most New Zealanders do of the state. So we've got Netflix. We've got all your kind of cultural influences being come down this country all the time. So, you know, I could relate to all that poem apart from maybe from that uh, little cultural difference thing there. Yeah, and I like the title, topsy-turvy kind of thing. So I enjoyed it hearing it. And that is that, uh, perhaps I could finish with that. I was just saying yeah, that the experience of hearing a, a poem, well-made poem, well-presented is important. You know, it, it, it goes with the poem almost like um, so. You know, because I came from out of spoken word, I, I always think that the actual event, the experience of being there in the room with the speaker, and, and kind of that communion you have there is, is great. But afterwards, does the poem have an afterlife? Mm. Does, it, does it carry on? Uh, sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, I have poems which I won't be reading ever again because uh, not unless there's some specific context but because they're not really alive anymore or they're not really relevant i should say anymore to what's going on the kind of poems to put in a cupboard like you know old souvenirs or something right 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 yeah and then once in a while you go back like looking at a picture album <laughs> yeah yeah you might you might you might look at that i'm always wanting to write another poem about, about what's happening so yeah i'm moving forward all the time i guess yeah yeah definitely Oh, it's funny because I'm actually not a spoken word poet because a part of the problem for me is that I cannot remember my own poems. So <laughs> though mm. sometimes I write, yeah. you know, these very sort of emotionally cathartic, especially political subject poems, uh, mm. spitting them out with my fingers, as it were. Mm. But I don't actually go in a performance aspect. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, it, unfortunately, it's just so happening right now that. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's, there's not a um, strong sense of, of maybe your idiosyncratic personal nature in that poem. It's more, more a generalized rant or or polemic 
yeah. kind of po- political qualm of the moment, which which we certainly need. Everyone needs to speak out. We, yeah. we need to speak out on this. There is a tyrant in the White House, um, larger even than, than we know kind of thing, because um, with his uh, Republican enablers, he's doing horrible things behind the scenes. and that, So it's worse worse than you can see kind of thing. And so that's important. I've written, of course, a few uh, poems about, about him and about Pence and about, you know, the coronavirus czar of the moment um, and about um, people like um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, who, who was his most expert White House press secretary in terms of stonewalling. <laughs> uh, and turning the argument away. No one's done it better than her so far. Um, but she was a great entertainment in herself, and uh, it's sort of Americans admire that the entertainment aspect of everything. And that, but that can corrupt and distort and, and stain and so forth as well. Of course, it makes for great satirical subject matter um, it for does. a satirist. It mm. does. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people are not taking what's happening seriously in what's going on in American politics partly because we have been desensitized by yes. reality TV. Yeah. Even though it is real, it does yeah. not feel real because... No, it's totally absurd and surreal. The horrible thing is that it's actually happening. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that is what makes it something to be dealt with. And we have to have to confront it head on as well as, as, as sort of joke about it. Because of what he's done, the, the track record, every time you look at it, it looks it's more horrifying kind of all the time. You know, any issue, uh, he always takes that very negative view of it. Uh, and it's self-promoting is the other aspect, and, and bringing out the worst of people, yeah. uh, that, all that, yeah. He has basically brought to his presidency all of the learnings he got from reality TV stardom. He, yeah. All of the, the bluster, the, uh, the self-promotion, it is very much in keeping with what is quote unquote needed in that particular industry, but but yes. not not in politics, not in no. to this extent anyway. Yeah, the terrible thing is how is how he got over that barrier. It was meant to keep people like that out well, it, <laughs> and into the White House. Well, that that moment in 2016 when he went over the barrier. Oh. I mean, how did that happen? You know, it was like a great whale kind of figure. Orange whale figure sort of crashing over the barrier somehow. Who enabled him to do that? It's like the Republicans enabled him to do that by setting, by skewing the system as they've done since way back in Al Gore's day, um, 2001, when they in Florida and stuff. So, kind of all that, you know, it's, it's, it's he's, he's like a, almost like a symptom, but the worst, worst kind of symptom. He kind is. Of, but kind of going I feel like we are all to blame to an extent whether or not we agree with his politics or disagree vehemently, but we all have this worshipping of celebrity um, that's, you know, it's part of our... One of our sins, I would say. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, that is part of it. Uh, it's not. A, it's not simply solved, and that's why no one can solve it in one one fell swoop. It's got to be done systematically over over quite a bit of time, and uh, that's why. I mean, Sanders is, is is a great figure to appear on, and and it's good that he's been around. This is a second go at it, and kind of thing. I'm not there, so I, but looking at it, and most of my friends would agree with that. Trump supporters are a curious bunch, and they're psychologically all twisted. There's a few of them in New Zealand, but if you <laughs> if you look at them, they're all they're all weirdos, you know. Kind of, I mean, they got they're like psychologically um, weird kind of people, and I think I think the, the same was true over there. 
you know, those people who, who voted for him and say, well, he, he's our guy. It's not about him. It's about the idea of what he represents and that. But, I mean, you, you, you hit on it when you said um, yeah. the people themselves are responsible for that by maybe watching too much TV and, and, well, yeah, <laughs> and, and sort of seeing the world through, through that lens and, 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 and it's kind of brainwashed, yeah, basically. Yeah, and believe yeah. in what's being offered on the surface. You know, like, mm. again, it's as if somehow if they get it wrong, it doesn't really hurt anyone, even though it does hurt people, including themselves. It, it, that's what does not make sense for me because he is only a projection of what he's mm. talking about. You know, like all his claims, they have been pretty much disproven. This man is a used car salesman. Uh, yes. You know, and, yeah, that's another weird aspect of it that everything he says is, is a lie. Yeah. And yet, his sort of his base uh, still applaud him furiously and, and, and ecstatically. I mean, how, how does that happen? You know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's still something to we were still sorting out, I think. Not all the picture's not all clear at the moment, but um, it's not, it's not. And you don't, you don't know how people get there. And people say things about him that are completely not true. And you're like, but there are actual facts out there that are. You know, I, I don't, uh, again, it's just yeah. like such a mystery, such a, uh, unfortunately, a mystery that's kind of tr- driving our lives into into this fragments, into a yeah. fra- fragmenting yeah. But it, it is It is because the Republicans have skewed the system that it's been shown that, you know, the, the electoral college and all that stuff, the way they've, they've changed the gerrymandering and stopping uh, a lot of people from voting. Mm-hmm. You know, take away their rights to vote in different ways and things. The Democrats are partly complicit in that, unfortunately. Those yes. the right wing Democrats, um, from what I can see. So, not an easy thing to solve. Straightforward. It's, it's going to be an incremental kind of battle there for a while. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's how, as you said, he's a symptom. It happened a long time ago, and you know, hmm. and I was talking about the this mixture of news and entertainment worlds. There's a lot of mashing up of different elements in the world. I mean, we led Reagan into the White House, even yeah. though he's so yeah. much more sane you know, in comparison, but only in comparison. So that's sort of how far we have come in many ways. And I hope we can become more sane again. <laughs> yeah, well, it remains to be seen. I mean, for us as poets, we, we kind of just write about our responses and, and and try to express them in the best way we can to to the situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, and that's that's the way of doing your social duty. That's the way of being part of your society. Yeah. If you are yeah. a writer and a poet, yeah. is to write the best you can about about the situation. Exactly. And I spoke slightly mockingly of how poems are of their period, but in fact, they they can help transform things. Uh, people read them and they become part of the bigger mass of, of um, opinion and yeah. um, and eloquently expressed or potently described situations, yeah. you know, contributing, making a difference. As you have done through your poetic life in pulling from the margins, you know, poetry that people might did not think belonged under the umbrella of poetry, but it is now um, because of that, those efforts. In closing, how do you prefer people find you to listen to you read or, or follow you on social media? Yeah, um, outside New Zealand, I guess you, you use the internet and um, there's a lot of stuff 
about David Eagleton, poet, New Zealand. Uh, there, um, there's a poet laureate blog which has got most recent updates. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Zealand poet laureate blog. If you make that initiative, that's how you'll discover more. But um, I enjoy reading American poets. Uh, Joy Harjo, uh, I believe she's the American poet laureate. She's been to New Zealand a few times, bought her work, very much enjoyed here um, as a poet. Mm-hmm. Guys from the past, Robert Haas, I believe he was a poet laureate back in the 1990s. I enjoy his stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a senior generation of American poets, some of them doing very good work. I think it's about diversity, mm-hmm. the opportunity to hear different voices and, and poetry. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I guess those two sites that you mentioned will list the events that you have coming up for people who who want to go yeah. see you live. Yeah, I'm I'm doing events all the time in terms of bringing poetry to the New Zealand public, and I'm hoping to attend a few international festivals too uh, coming up. Uh, 2020 and 2021. There are other Pacifica and Polynesian and Maori poets I should mention as well. There's, there's uh, Ben Brown, who's a very good uh, Christchurch poet. Tusiata Avia, who's um, play um, Wild Dogs Under My Skirt, it's recently been on in New York and is apparently getting a return season there off Broadway. It's been on Broadway. And she's a, a poet and, and playwright who, um, well worth checking out. And Carlo Mila is another one who's a Tongan poet. Mm. Uh, Aparana Taylor. There are many, yeah, <laughs> many I, I good writers so. in this country at the yes. moment. Um, and and um, any good Pacifica and, and Maori writers um, mm-hmm. coming through. So I think we're we're in a healthy place, um, New Zealand literature, um, talking about what matters to us and and by extension the world. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad for that because I I don't like the fact that, despite the fact that you can relate to what I'm saying, just by the sort of like uh, cultural colonialism that's happening with yeah. American yeah, culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I go by poems. I mean, you read a really good poem there, uh, and I enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. You know, that's the experience mm-hmm. I'm looking for. It's just the poem. Right. So the poem hits you or, or gets through to you. That's what matters. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And, and mm. thank you very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And okay. Thank you. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.